This morning we began looking at the aggregate of feeling. The very simple aspect of our experience of whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. The exploration of feeling is highlighted in the teachings of the Buddha over and over again. The importance of recognizing feeling, understanding feeling, when we are caught by our habitual patterns, The Buddhist teachings say, when ignorance is present in the mind, there will be a conditioned tendency for feeling tone to be followed by craving, leading into the cycle of reactivity and suffering. And so it is the arising a feeling with ignorance in the mind that tumbles it forward into our reactive states. It is not necessary for feeling to tumble into our reactive states. When we clearly understand feeling as feeling, that movement to reactivity can be short-circuited. So this really highlights the importance of meeting the experience, recognizing the aspect of our experience of feeling with mindfulness and wisdom. This afternoon I'd like to explore some uh, aspects of the teaching that are perhaps a little less frequently looked at. But just starting with the Satipatthana Sutta. The aggregate of feeling, one of the five aggregates, has a special place in the Satipatthana Sutta in that it has its own foundation. It has its own section where the Buddha says, be mindful of this part of experience. And again, the instructions are really simple. The first part of this section of the Satipatthana Sutta And how does one abide contemplating feelings as feelings? Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, one understands. I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, one understands. I feel an unpleasant feeling. When feeling a neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, one understands. I feel a neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. Again, highlighting that perspective we've been talking about of noticing the arising of experience as the arising of experience. When pleasant feeling arises, we know pleasant feeling is arising. Really simple. So this morning we began looking at recognizing feeling, getting familiar with it. Recognizing that it is with every moment of experience, every sense impression, every contact with body, any of the sense doors of the body, any contact with the mind, 
there is a, a, a sense the sense impression leads to or is associated with I should say more because they arise together the sense impression is uh, connected with a feeling The easiest place to begin this, if you're unfamiliar with it, is looking at body sensation. As I said yesterday, the body is kind of a unique, the physical body is kind of a unique uh, organ that is highly attuned to pleasant and unpleasant experience. And so it can be the easiest place to begin getting familiar with this experience. And yet, as um, I pointed out this morning, that even that physical sense experience, the physical sense impression, the feeling tone associated with it is created by the mind. It's a mental experience. I talked about that study with the shocks and how the expectation of whether uh, the shock was going to be more unpleasant than it actually was created the conditions for that shock to be experienced as pleasant. And so it's not necessary. We don't have to feel like it's a mental experience. This is more information. And also to begin to recognize through that information that our feeling tone is also conditioned, very conditioned by past experience and the state of our minds. And then of course our mental experiences also have pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience to them. Joy is usually pleasant Anger is usually unpleasant. The feeling of equanimity can be a neutral feeling. <laughs> and yet, it's interesting in the, the teachings of the Buddha, he sometimes described that neutral feeling as being a pleasant feeling. And in my own um, experience being an aversive type, certainly the absence of the unpleasantness of aversion, even if it's just non-reactivity, can be felt as such a relief that the experience is pleasant. In talking about this morning that expectation that uh, whether the shock was going to be strong or weak leading to whether the feeling tone was pleasant or unpleasant, it's interesting to begin to explore and to look at how our views, our opinions, our beliefs, our attitudes impact feeling tone. In fact, I'd say that ideas, beliefs, expectations are a leading cause of feeling tone, a leading kind of, uh, or a key component in the, in the uh, how we feel things. It's related to our ideas, our views, our beliefs. There's one teaching, it's, um, it's a late teaching, it's not in the suttas, um, but it's interesting and I found it an interesting one to explore, so I'll mention it to you. And it is the uh, 
in the um, Buddhist psychology, it's not even in the Abhidhamma, it's not in the Buddhist psychology itself, but it's in a commentary to the Buddhist psychology, so this shows you how late it is. Um, not the Buddha's words, but uh, the, the comment commentary to the Abhidhamma says that in the physical sense realm, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, that only the touch sense will be pleasant or unpleasant, that the bare contact on the eye of sight, the bare contact on the ear of sound, on the nose of smell, on the tongue of taste, is neutral. And that any sense that we have that a sight is pleasant or that a sound is unpleasant is because there is a, a mental construct, a belief of you happening that creates the experience of pleasant or unpleasant. And so we can see this kind of thing in our experience. Um, maybe we're sitting in meditation and uh, somebody um, um, sneezes or coughs or there's some sounds in the room and you know, there may be the experience of unpleasant related to that sound or a sense that the sound itself was unpleasant. Well, this, um, this teaching points to, it's not so much the sound itself, that the sound itself is neutral, but it's some idea. And if we look at our experience in this kind of situation, we can see at times where the mind is very settled and calm and a sound arises a sneeze or a cough, and it's just a sound. At other times, we may be a little more agitated, and uh, the sound arises, and we start thinking, and it's more along the lines of, why can't people be quiet in here, or something. And so there's that, that reactivity in the mind, which is unpleasant. And so the experience of the sound is filtered through the unpleasant reactivity and is taken to be unpleasant. When we're walking around the property, we may see a beautiful flower and think it's pleasant. This teaching suggests it's not the sense contact, it's not the actual sight that's pleasant. It's perhaps our associations with flowers and the memory of the smell of a pleasant flower, or I don't know, just all kinds of associations we have that we think flowers are beautiful. Now, I don't know if this is actually what's going on, but I will say I found this teaching to provide a very interesting foundation for exploration in my own practice. To uh, be curious with sense impression that I'm interpreting as unpleasant or pleasant and looking at, is there something going on? Is there something else going on? An idea, a belief of you. One uh, experience I had along these lines. I was meditating one night and it was late. It was middle of the night. I had fallen asleep and woken up and had trouble sleeping so I just got up to meditate. And um, while I was sitting, I heard this very quiet tapping sound. Like just like just a tap, tap, white light, tapping sound. 
The mind experienced it as unpleasant. I had some aversion to the sound. But I kept watching. It would come, it would go, and I was just noticing the unpleasant experience. The unpleasantness of the hearing. I'd noticed the hearing. I'd noticed that my mind felt it was unpleasant, and I'd noticed the aversion. At some point in that, uh, in that um, process, I recognized that when I heard that tapping sound, there was a contraction in the body. And I don't know whether the contraction came before or after the aversion, but in any case, I recognized that the contraction was unpleasant. It's like, okay, well, there's some additional stuff going on here. This physical tightening of the body is unpleasant. And then a little while later, I heard the tapping sound begin, and I felt fear with the tapping. The tapping happened, and, and just a subtle whoosh, a fear went through my system. That was really, that was unpleasant. Fear was unpleasant. And with that uh, recognition that the fear was unpleasant, the next time I heard the tapping sound, the mind distinguished between the fear and the unpleasantness of fear and the feeling tone of the tapping, which was just neutral. It was just a tapping sound. And in, you know, retrospect, I could see that the mind had created this idea that this tapping sound meant that there were rats in my wall. Unpleasant thought. <laughs> so again, the, the, the interpretation of the sound itself as unpleasant had been filtered through all of these mental states. So in exploring our feeling tones, it can be really, this is an avenue of curiosity again, not to try to figure it out. When I was sitting there watching the, the, uh, the unpleasantness and watching that sound and feeling what was going on, I was just ob observing, I was just receiving experience. The understanding about the feeling being associated more with the fear than the, uh, sen the, the sound came as I just observed. And so hearing something about this uh, idea that most of our physical uh, experience, aside from our touch sense, is uh, neutral, we can begin to get really curious about our our interpretation of sense experience as being pleasant or unpleasant. It also helps us to kind of tease apart what's physical from what's mental. And seeing again that much, I'd probably say most of our reactivity is actually coming from something happening in our minds. Even the construction of a mental uh, a view, an idea, that lays an interpretation of unpleasantness on a physical experience. And so when hearing that tapping sound, it actually wasn't the tapping that I was reacting to. Or it wasn't the, the aversion wasn't about the tapping. The leaping off wasn't the tapping. It was, it was the idea that had been constructed. Rats in the wall. Oh no, <laughs> fear arising. That's what the mind leapt off of into the aversion. That had happened at such a subtle level that I hadn't seen it until I started observing and watching. So again, seeing how much of our reactivity is generated by our minds. Some other helpful explorations around feeling tone. Um, I mentioned this morning, just kind of in passing, um, it can be useful 
if you're noticing, a, I, I said, I said, uh, you know, it may not be something you want to kind of direct your attention to to look for feeling tone. But if you're in a state of of reactivity, if you're experiencing some kind of aversion, there's something unpleasant happening in your experience. Do you know what it is? Do you know what the reaction is actually springing from? And so, if there's that kind of uh, ongoing reactivity happening, it can be interesting to explore, okay, where is the unpleasantness here? I did this at one point. I'd heard this teaching. Actually, Carol Wilson had said, if you're experiencing aversion, you're not noticing something that's unpleasant. So I was like, okay, Carol, I'll look, check this out. I was doing walking meditation and uh, in this uh, room in, at IMS, a small room, felt pretty full to me, you know, we each had a little space there uh, to do our walking in. And somebody came into the room and got right in the lane next to me where I felt like it was already full. And, ooh, aversion just flared. And so it's like, okay. And it kept going. And, and I began being curious. Okay, what what is unpleasant here? It wasn't actually obvious to me what was unpleasant. And so I began exploring. I checked all the senses. Sight. Well, the person actually didn't look unpleasant. Okay, rule that one out. There wasn't uh, a, an unpleasant odor coming from the person. Rule that one out. Um, I couldn't taste the person. <laughs> rule that one out. <laughs> We weren't making physical contact. Rule that one out. I ruled all the five physical senses out. It's like, it's got to be something in the mind. <laughs> okay. And I still didn't see anything in particular. So I just, it's like, okay, well, let's just see. And I just was walking with the, with the um, uh, aversion. And I, it's like, I said, there's got to be some thought in there, some kind of thinking or something. And so I was just kind of walking. And at some point, uh, I saw this thought come up. He's weird. <laughs> oh, that's a thought. Okay. <laughs> I still didn't quite get it. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and then I kept walking. And I discovered, the, the mind produced the reason why I thought this person was weird. The mind exploded with this thought. It's freezing cold, and he's in bare feet. When I saw that, that the seeing of that thought just exposed the exposed the ludicrousness of the of the belief that he was weird, and the and and it's like the whole thing kind of popped, the whole bubble popped, and I recognized, oh my gosh, this aversion is a result of something I'm completely creating in my own mind. I'm averse to my own mind. I'm averse to something happening in my own mind. In the next moment, metta was naturally happening for that person. I think this can be fun. To me, this kind of stuff is really fun to explore. It takes something like aversion and turns it into a a fascinating experiment. So, when you're ex caught in some kind of a, of a uh, reactive state, check for what's pleasant or unpleasant. If you're caught in a wanting, what is the pleasant that you actually want? So much of the time when we're caught in a wanting, what we want is really an idea. I, I think I told the story about wanting to tell my teacher that I was having an insight. Yeah, that, that's like, that's the mind creating something. Again, it's a, an idea, a pleasant idea that I wanted. So again, when we have these, we're caught by things. It can be interesting to check into what is actually pleasant or unpleasant that the mind is reacting to or trying to hold on to. And then it's also helpful 
interesting to begin to explore what is our relationship with neutral experience? Well, something I've noticed around neutral experience is that it's like when we're not aware of neutral experience, it's a springboard for our habitual patterns to take birth. I think because when we're not, when we're in a space of neutral experience, our mind tends to be, it it can lead to boredom when neutral is happening or when we're not, um, when we're not, uh, it's not either pleasant or unpleasant. The mind doesn't tend to gravitate towards neutral too much. And so when there's a lot of neutral experience happening, the mind can get bored. So that's a a key reaction to neutral experience to check for. You know, if there's if there's a lot of uh, boredom happening, there may be neutral experience going on. Is boredom a result of not being able to connect to or recognize, oh yeah, what's happening here is that it's not pleasant or unpleasant. Neutral can be pretty subtle. So it's easy for the mind to not really connect to it. And then when we are in a space of neutral, uh, because we're not connecting to it, it's like uh, when the mindfulness is kind of hovering and kind of sinking a little bit, it's, it's not so strong. As soon as the mindfulness weakens, it's like whatever our habitual tendencies are are likely to show up. So at one point, um, on a retreat, I was experiencing quite a bit of neutral. And um, one interesting thing about neutral, which I'll share with you because it helps explain the story a little bit, is that um, as the mind settles down, as there's less reactivity in the mind, experience tends to become more neutral. We mentioned, I mentioned that when there's aversion in the mind, we tend to orient and kind of seek unpleasant out of our experience. Our mind creates unpleasantness in experience when there's aversion in the mind. I gave my example of looking across the room and seeing shoes and it was unpleasant. So the... um, the reactivity in our minds, the greed, the aversion, does actually generate a certain amount of pleasant and unpleasant experience. Not all of it, but a good amount of it. And so when uh, those reactivities die down, we end up in a place where it's much more neutral. And the, uh, the kind of landing in that place of neutrality the mind can begin to uh, open into deeper terrain, open into deeper understandings. And so I was experiencing neutral and remembering this teaching. This can open into deeper understanding. So there was a leaning, a kind of like, ooh, this is good that there's all this neutral experience. And, you know, so there was neutral and I was like, kind of waiting for something really good to happen. (laughs) (laughs) And nothing happened. And um, I don't know how my mind decided how long it would take for something good to happen, but in some stretch of time, my mind finally decided nothing good is going to happen. And the mind, like, started to put its uh, self-hatred patterns out there. You know, you're no good, you're a failure, you can't do this. It's like, wow, you know, out of neutral, the mind creating its self-hatred. I was present enough to see it, and I kind of smiled at it. It's like, okay, you know, I don't have to go there. 
know, the mind, that, that it was, the mind was present enough with that arising of that, you're no good, you're failing, to not have it go down the garden path or the rabbit hole of the self-hatred that time. So being curious about when we're in neutral, you know, what happens? You know, ooh, something good? Ooh, it's really boring. So really looking at and exploring the conditioning and the interrelationships between formations and feeling, perception, I talked about the perception of the coiled form and how that can lead to feeling when we perceive something, there's a feeling associated with perception. I'll talk more about perception later, probably tomorrow. Um, I'm beginning to see the interaction of feeling with these other areas of experience. How feeling is conditioned. How feeling, when ignorance is present, conditions reactivity. The next part of the sutta explores uh, another level of feeling. So the first part is just, let's just look at pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. The next part, it breaks it down into different kinds of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So it describes when feeling a worldly pleasant feeling one understands, I feel a worldly pleasant feeling. Different translation for this word um, that's translated as worldly, samisa, is the Pali, samisa. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi sometimes translates it as carnal, kind of of the flesh. The uh, descriptions indicate it's the pleasure associated with the physical senses. And I think also with respect to when the mind is relating to physical senses. So, you know, a thought, a thought can have a pleasant feeling because of our interpretations around, well, like the thought of a muffin, you know. The thought of that banana chocolate muffin, you know, can be pleasant. And that's also this uh, pleasure connected with sense experience. So the sutta talks about pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling associated with the sense realm and then, here the translation is, when feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling, one understands I feel an unworldly pleasant feeling, unpleasant and neutral. And again, a different translation for the Pali, which is Niramisa, is uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as spiritual, so spiritual pleasant feeling, spiritual unpleasant feeling. Um, also sometimes talked about as the um, um, pleasant unpleasant neutral feeling associated with renunciation or letting go. Sometimes I explore these two as and, and one way, this is, I think, the way um, Bhikkhu Analio uh, talks about the uh, worldly and unworldly pleasant, that the, that the worldly pleasant feeling is feeling tone not, um, not connected with the, f the path of practice. 
and the unworldly or spiritual feeling as feeling that is leading us in the direction of the path of practice. So I want to explore this part a little bit. This to me is, um, Analio says, this points to an ethical dimension of feeling, not in terms of good, bad, the ethics in Buddhism, as I mentioned, I think the other day, is, is about what leads to uh, freedom and what leads us into the continued round of suffering. And so that's what ethics is about here, when I say it's got an ethical dimension to it. The worldly pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling being connected with the sense realm tends to um, be generative of the, uh, when ignorance is present, leading us into reactivity. And these are the, um, the kind of feelings that we move through our daily lives with much of the time. I want to be careful here because It's pretty clear in what the Buddha taught, you know, putting this idea of these are feelings, not the path. These are feelings, the path that leads to the idea of like, oh, if I'm experiencing the pleasantness of the muffin, it means I'm off the path. Again, there's the, the idea or the, the possibility of being aware, oh, this is a pleasant feeling happening in this moment. As soon as a worldly pleasant feeling is understood as this is a pleasant feeling arising in this moment. We're on the path. The suttas indicate that, uh, I mean, in, in the Satipatthana Sutta here again, it just says, when noticing a worldly pleasant feeling, know that a worldly pleasant feeling is happening. It doesn't say, oh, notice a worldly pleasant feeling is happening and get rid of it. So that neutrality, that, that simple observation, when we are not able to bring that kind of simple observation, that worldly pleasant feeling will tend to lead to greed, will tend to lead us onward into wanting and the contraction around that and suffering, following. In the suttas, it does say that any kind of feeling, and here in particular, it talks about the, the feeling of sense impression. If sense impression is comprehended at any of the six sense bases, the three kinds of feeling are thereby comprehended. And this is deep comprehension here. <laughs> this is deep comprehension because it goes on to say, and if the three kinds of feeling are comprehended, I say there is no further work to do for the noble disciple. Meaning essentially that the full comprehension of feeling leads to freedom. And so I want to say that up front because this talking about worldly pleasant and unworldly pleasant, the, the worldly unworldly dimension to it can create some conflict in our minds about the, the, the kind of normal feelings that we have. And you know, the, the, the Buddha in the suttas clearly said, just comprehend those feelings. That leads to freedom. Understanding grows as we comprehend pleasant feeling as arising in the present moment. So the unworldly feeling, the spiritual feeling, or the feelings connected with the path. It's interesting to explore what this means. There's, there, are few there are a few places in the suttas where it describes what it means. It, it doesn't describe what it means in the Satipatthana Sutta. It just says, if it's an unworldly pleasant feeling, no, it's an unworldly pleasant feeling, which leaves us wondering, well, how do I know it's an unworldly pleasant feeling? 
And later in the suttas, elsewhere in the suttas, it describes um, when we are experiencing, when we are in a place where we are experiencing an understanding, deeply recognizing the impermanent nature of experience, the mind feels that at different ways at different times. And so sometimes when we are um, uh, noticing the impermanent nature of experience, sitting and, and just seeing change, experience arises and passes and experience arises and passes, sometimes that experience brings a joy. The seeing of impermanence there can create such delight in the mind because wisdom is present and the mind delights in that wisdom. And so this is what is described as the world unworldly pleasant experience. The pleasure that comes with insight. Sometimes though, when we are noticing experience as uh, rapidly changing, the mind um, especially if we're if we're noticing just that there's nothing to land on sometimes we move into a place of seeing impermanence at such a level that there's a a deep recognition that there's absolutely nowhere to land and the mind uh kind of is uncomfortable in that place. The suttas say it can generate a longing for liberation. Kind of like, in my experience, it's something like, enough already with this seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching. It's, it's like you're, you're uh, you know, wanting quiet in there are all of these, um, teenagers screaming in the room. <laughs> it's just it's just like so much sense overwhelm. It's like sense overwhelm. Sense sense just we're just being bombarded by senses. And it's like, oh when when will there be freedom? When will there be freedom? And the suttas say that this longing generates a sadness or a grief that's experienced as unpleasant. This is the unworldly, unpleasant experience. The longing for freedom. That's a distinct kind of longing than longing or wanting sense pleasure. And here it's pointing to that kind of wanting, the wanting for freedom as being right on the path of practice. We're probably not going to get around that one. And so, again, the Buddha recommends, notice it. Notice that kind of unpleasant experience, that longing for freedom. Sometimes our relationship to seeing the impermanent nature of experience is the mind has landed in balance equanimity. That equanimity is said to be unworldly, neutral experience. The pleasure of concentration is also understood to be an unworldly pleasant experience. 
when we settle into the mind that is very stable, there's a pleasantness to the stability that is described also as pleasure on the path. And so this was actually an important distinction for the Buddha, this worldly and unworldly pleasure, because it came up the night, it's, it's said it came up the, 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 he had been, he had been um, uh, exploring the renunciate path, the uh, sense deprivation path. I can't think of the word of it. Somebody tell me. Ascetic, ascetic that's it. <laughs> the ascetic practices and the, um, not just the ascetic, but the supreme, the severe renunciate practices of like, you know, taking one grain of rice a week and lots of unpleasant experiences. He described, he said, you know, I experienced so many unpleasant experiences, racking pains, and, and still I didn't find freedom. Um, there was a belief, I think, at that time that if you deprived your body of pleasant experience and... Um, put it into that space of the deep ascetic practices that the mind would kind of liberate itself, like it would shoot itself out of the body or something because it couldn't stand to be in the body anymore. Kind of that's how I looked at it. Um, and so in his path, he, ha- he had uh, started in his uh, childhood apparently with a lot of sense pleasure, living in a... A, pa- a palace and different palaces for different times of the year and uh, so lots of pleasure growing up and and then the renunciate practices lots of unpleasantness and in in those renunciate practices there was a fear around feeling pleasant experience it's like any pleasant experience was to be avoided and at some point he uh recognized that this severe ascetic practices were not the way. And he had a memory of sitting with under, a, under the rose apple tree when he was a, a child, watching his father uh, do a, a plowing ceremony. And at that time when he was a child, he spontaneously entered into a state of, of concentration that was very pleasurable. And that moment where he was experiencing despair and on the verge of death, actually, because he had deprived himself of so much food, he had this memory come up. And in his mind, you know, so this is, this is interesting, I think, you know, the, the Buddha's own story of his journey talks about, yeah, I had this memory. It was useful to think about this memory. So let this be a support for us. <laughs> <laughs> And so he, uh, he thought about that memory and he, he, wrote, he, he thought about it, he said, that kind of pleasure, it's a different kind of pleasure than you know, the pleasure of the senses. Is, that, is there danger in that? Maybe that's the way, maybe that's the way to freedom. And in reflecting on it, he thought, I think it's the way to freedom. I don't need to be afraid of that kind of pleasure. I don't need to uh, push away or um, have an have a aversive relationship with that kind of pleasure. And so he took some food, he spent some time getting himself healthy and began exploring the practice again from the perspective of the, the, the concentration that, that comes as we settle our minds and not not moving away from the pleasure that comes with that. And so for him, for his practice, that distinction between worldly pleasant and unworldly pleasant was crucial in his recognition of, is it possible to be free from suffering? And I think that's why he points it out, points it out to us in this teaching on feeling. It was a it was a major turning point for his path, this recognition of this distinction. 
And so we can be curious about how pleasure in particular arises in connection with the deepening of our practice. There's many ways that happiness comes about. Happiness, pleasure, delight, joy. There's one teaching uh, called Transcendent Dependent Origination where it, instead of listing the set of conditions that lead us through the cycle of suffering over and over again, it lists the conditions, it shows the kind of chain of conditions that support and move us in the direction of freedom. And firmly on that list of transcendent dependent origination, transcendent dependent origination are delight, joy, happiness. So being curious about the kinds of happiness that come with the path. And happiness being a pleasant experience. Actually, the word for happiness and the word for pleasure in Pali are the same. Sukha. So we can notice the happiness of giving, of generosity, the joy of that. There is a a delight in that that's connected with the path. There's the pleasure, the delight of ethical conduct, of realizing we are engaging in ways that are non-harming. There's a pleasure of concentration, the pleasure of insight. And the mind has no shame. It can cling to any of those. (laughs) (laughs) So we just have to notice that. It's not that we have to avoid the happiness of giving, but notice when we cling to the happiness of giving. It's not that we have to avoid the happiness of concentration, but notice when we, and we notice, you you have a good sitting, or what we think of as good sitting, you know, when the mind really gets still and quiet and uh, feels good. Lots of that pleasure of the path. Usually, we're not clinging to it in that moment. But it's after the fact. We remember it. We think about it. It's like, and then we cling to the memory. We cling to the idea of it. Oh, can I have that back again? How can I get that back? And we turn, try to get it back. And it doesn't work. And we suffer. So we notice the dukkha of clinging to the pleasure of concentration. The pleasure of insight also. We have insight. We recognize something. We, we uh, recognize the, uh, we have an understanding about experience. Sometimes when we're in a place where the mind is very clearly aware, lots of continuity of mindfulness and um, wisdom is present. Sometimes it just is, it's so clear how craving leads to suffering and it's just like, it's so blindingly obvious. It's like, how can I not see this? So in a state of insight, there's the pleasure of that recognition There's the pleasure of being in the space of understanding. It seems so obvious that we can't fathom in that state not understanding it. And yet delusion is a very powerful uh, force in our minds. And delusion returns. Minutes later, maybe hours later, but often minutes later, and it's like, wait a minute, I guess it wasn't so obvious because I sure can't see it now. I do not see how I understood that. And then we cling back. It's like, I want that back. How do I get that back? Steve Armstrong has a great saying. He says, there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin your day. (laughs) 
that's that clinging to the pleasure of the concentration, the insight. The um, unworldly happiness, the joy of concentration, the joy of insight, when we experience those, we see that there is no comparison to the pleasure of having that banana muffin. It's like there, it is leagues beyond the banana muffin. And so the, uh, the mind in experiencing and beginning to contact the pleasure of concentration and the pleasure of insight begins to uh, be interested in letting go of the pleasure for the banana muffin because it sees that it's a lesser kind of pleasure. Before we have the pleasure of concentration, the pleasure of insight, our minds are on this wheel, this churning of, okay, how can I be happy? I need to get what I want. I need to get rid of what I don't want. And we get these little bits of happiness as we go. And the Buddha talks about that. He says, yes, there is happiness in getting what you want. But how long does it last? We see it's pretty fleeting. There's happiness in getting rid of what you don't want. There's a sense of control. It feels good. Ha, I figured it out. How long does that pleasure last? It's pretty fleeting when we start to really look at it. And so before we contact or recognize the pleasure of concentration, the pleasure of insight, we think the pleasure of getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, is as good as it gets. And so we're stuck on that wheel. As we begin to taste this different kind of pleasure, it's like we move from this wheel of being caught in this cycle of just generating suffering into that path leading towards a deeper kind of happiness, the happiness of freedom, mahasukha, it's sometimes called, the great happiness. And so the touching into that world, unworldly pleasure helps us. It's, it's like, uh, you know, the pleasure of concentration is also unreliable. <laughs> and yet it helps us to begin to let go of a lesser kind of happiness. The pleasure of insight begins to point us more in the direction of the possibility of freedom. We taste the flavor of letting go and happiness that is not dependent on conditions in the world. We taste that possibility. And the mind is interested in moving in that direction, letting go of that cycle of reactivity that's dependent on ignorance and feeling tone. And the last piece I'll say is just to re-emphasize that it is the ignorance the not understanding of how suffering comes to be that creates the tendency for feeling to lead to craving. Feeling doesn't inherently lead there. And the more we get interested in this simple aspect of recognizing feeling as it arises, the more the wisdom grows, the understanding grows. And that wisdom puts a different uh, 
terrain in the mind, a different climate in the mind, such that feeling doesn't lead to craving. When ignorance is present, feeling leads to craving. When wisdom is present, feeling is known as feeling. It leads onward to the possibility of freedom. So thank you for your attention.